Anna. How are you? I'm good. It's been a pretty okay week, like nothing too exciting. I think the highlight of my week was probably discovering 30 Rock on Netflix. You've never watched 30 Rock? (laughs) I've never seen it, and it's so good. It is so good. I tore my ACL, oh my god, 10 years ago? Uh Uh-huh. I was in high school, and I remember my mom and I just marathon 30 Rock. (laughs) Aw. It's such a good show to marathon because it's so lighthearted. The episodes are only 20 minutes long, and Tina Fey is a phenomenal writer. She is so funny. It's actually funny that you bring this up. I just learned today that apparently Tina Fey hid a Star Wars joke in every single episode of 30 Rock. Oh, no way. I've picked up on a few of them, but I didn't realize it was every single episode. That's what Maddie Majacobo told me in my Peloton running class today. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, that's so it's funny. I love 30 Rock. Your Peloton class on your Schwinn bike. Actually, I did it on the treadmill upstairs. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, they do treadmill classes too. I don't, again, my apartment doesn't have a Peloton treadmill. I just use the regular treadmill. Yeah. But having somebody else like pick the music and just talk to me for 30 minutes while I'm running is so much more enjoyable to me than just running for 30 minutes in silence on the treadmill. Yeah, I was going to ask how you feel about those because it's definitely a different experience than actually going to a physical class to like watch a screen. So it actually, I really like it. I have no problem with it. It feels so much the same to me, like a real class. Like at first I thought it would feel different, but it doesn't at all to me. Okay. That's awesome. I would recommend. I really like it. But anyway, he said Tina Fey hit a Star Wars joke in every episode of 30 Rock. It's a hilarious show. I love it. It's so funny and lighthearted. I really like it too. How about you, Anna? What have you been up to? I was thinking about this. I was like, nothing that exciting, except update on that Chase Lounge I bought. I've had it for (laughs) probably like a month now, and it's great. I really like it. (laughs) Yes, I can also say it's great because I went over to Anna's place, and I definitely sat on there and ate cake. (laughs) It's nice. (laughs) It's pretty awesome. It's like so roomy and comfy. Anna has this great balcony. It's the best, just sitting out there enjoying the weather and... I specifically ate cake on that lounge, and it was awesome. I don't think there's a better way to enjoy it. (laughs) It's getting cooler, but I'm one of those people who will... I will sit outside until it's just way too cold or rainy to do so. I push it as far as I possibly can. Oh, yeah. Anna has a really good tolerance for cold weather, I've learned. Um, (laughs) Unlike me. (laughs) The first time I went running with Henna, I was like, what's the weather going to be like? And she was like, it's really cold. It was like 65. <laughs> I, I remember this. I was wearing like three layers and Anna shows up and probably a tank top or a t-shirt. <laughs> but I'm really bad in hot weather. Like anything above 80, I just get way too warm. Yeah, and I'm the opposite. I love it. I love feeling like it's a sauna outside and wandering around. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm good. I'll pass. <laughs> But yeah, I can see you totally enjoying the Chase Lounge through the fall and, you know, sitting out there, drinking your coffee, reading a book if you have your layers on. It's nice. Or I bring a blanket. I have like a dedicated blanket that I use outside. Nice. It's nice. I like the fresh air. I didn't realize that's become so much more valuable to me in the pandemic. Oh my gosh, yes. Funny you bring this up because that's been like a thought I've had all week is how much I spend time inside and I'm missing 
planet Earth outside. Like, I'm missing yes. fresh air. I'm missing seeing the trees. And it's hard to realize until the end of the day comes around, you look outside and it's already sunset, you know? I had a week in the middle of the winter where it was like three or four days. And on day four, I was just so groggy. I couldn't figure out what was wrong. And I was like, uh-huh. oh my God, I haven't left my apartment. I hadn't left my apartment in four days. I hadn't stepped outside in four days. And I wasn't in quarantine or anything. I just <laughs> had a parent been so absorbed into my work. I didn't think about it. Yeah. And so then I like went outside for a run and I just immediately felt so much better. It can totally have a zombie effect just staying inside. Also, something I learned, especially with my place, is that there's no forced air system. So if I don't open the windows, CO2 builds up and CO2, like CO2 building up will make you groggy and sluggish. And I realized that one weekend when, when I hadn't opened any windows and I was just feeling so sleepy and groggy. Then I opened the windows and I was like, oh, yep, there wasn't a forced air system in here. Oh, geez. Good to know. Yeah, so just a PSA for everyone. (laughs) On that note, should we go ahead and get started with our episode? Yeah, let's do it. Um, All right, Anna, why don't you introduce the topic since you came up with it? I was skimming through Wired Magazine one day, and it did that thing where it was like, oh, recommended for you. And it was an article titled, A Bad Solar Storm Could Cause an Internet Apocalypse. I'll have it linked in the show notes. It's by Lily Hay Newman. But I read through the article, it was actually really interesting, and it occurred to me that we have never actually done an episode on solar storms. Yes, and I remember you bringing it up in our past episodes, so I'm really excited about this one. We've touched upon it, but we've never given it its own dedicated episode, so it's about time. Yes, all right, so let's get into it. But first, should we introduce ourselves? Yes, let's do it. I'm Henna. I'm Anna. And this is, but but it it is is rocket science. Science. All right. I am going to do the technical description for you all this week. The article I mentioned went on to discuss that a large solar storm has the potential to damage the electrical grid, causing widespread power outages, which then would in turn take out the internet and cause all around chaos. Oof. Yeah, not good. So when I hear about this kind of thing, the first thing I always think of is Y2K. It's, in case you don't know what that is, in early programming languages, to save memory, years were written in the two-digit format instead of the four-digit format. So that would be like today's date would be 9-21-21 rather than 9-21-2021. So that's the two-digit year versus the four-digit year. Now, as the millennium approached, programmers started to realize that this could cause an issue if the computers read 00 as 1900 instead of 2000. So in all programming before the year 2000, they wrote years in the two-digit format. It would be like 98, 99, and they were worried 00 would be, computers would read it as 1900. And so time would appear to go backwards. Oof, that would have been a huge issue. Yes, and there were concerns that this could cause large-scale blackouts, interruptions to air traffic, disruptions in financial transactions, and even the possibility of nuclear meltdown. Now, as I'm sure you all know, Y2K never ended up being a problem. And actually, what I think is a misconception is it ended up not being a problem, not because it was never going to be an issue, but because action was taken to ensure it would not be a problem. If you've ever seen the movie Office Space, the main character, Peter, his entire job is changing the years in code from two digits to four digits. So exciting. Yeah, go back and watch that movie because I think it makes more sense when you know that because that's his whole job. Like, that's got to be incredibly boring. 
Yeah. Part of the reason why this reminds me of Y2K is because the potential damage a major solar storm could have is known in the scientific community. It is entirely possible that this could happen. But at the same point, something to note, I don't want anybody to think this episode is about fear-mongering, but I do think it's important for everybody to know that this is a possibility, and we'll get into it a little bit later. There's actually a TV show on the BBC about this exact scenario, and it's called Cobra. Uh, It was really good. I liked it a lot. I don't know if they're going to do another season. Now, as I kind of mentioned a second ago, before anybody panics, the chances of this happening are low. However, as I'm sure we're all aware, it's been a crazy one and a half years. And I tell this to everyone, but buy a crank radio. They're not expensive. You can get them for 20 bucks on Amazon. I have one. I gave them to my whole family for Christmas. Even if the power were to go out in not a solar storm, it's good to have access to the radio. Yeah, absolutely. Like when a solar storm passes and you need something to like communicate or find information about, like a crank radio would be really helpful. And just for other emergencies as well, Anna's right. Like it could be really nifty to have. Yeah, and then the one I have is also a flashlight, and it, like you can use it to charge your cell phone. It takes a long time. That was the complaint in the Amazon reviews. <laughs> People are like, it takes a long time to crank it. I was like, yeah, that's why this isn't a source of power we use in our everyday lives. <laughs> like, right. <laughs> and now we're just so used to instant gratification with everything working constantly. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, if there's a huge power outage, I don't think I'm going to have lots of other things to do. Right. <laughs> But yes, it will take a long time, but I think it's good to have. All right, but let's back back on track. So what exactly is a solar storm? And the term actually encompasses a couple things. The first of which are solar flares, which are large explosions in the sun's atmosphere. They occur when energy that's stored in magnetic fields gets twisted and is suddenly released. Now, if you're wondering how a magnetic field can get twisted... The best explanation I read for this is that magnetic fields are like rubber bands. And so if you have these two rubber bands, you twist them, you twist them, you twist them, you twist them. If you twist them too tight, they're going to snap. And that's a solar flare. And I'll link it in the show notes. But this analogy was made in an Astrophysics 1 lecture notes from Professor Dale E. Gray at the New Jersey Institute of Technology. I don't know how I stumbled upon these notes, but they were really good. That's awesome. Thank you, Dr. Gary. Or Professor Gary. I don't know if he has a PhD. But this usually occurs over sunspots. Now, sunspots are areas on the sun which appear darker. And they're darker because they're actually cooler than the rest of the sun's surface. Okay, this is where it starts to get confusing. The reason the surface is cooler in those areas is because the magnetic field is incredibly strong at those points. It's about 2,500 times higher than Earth's magnetic field. Because of the strength of the magnetic field, it actually prevents convection. So convection is heat transfer. As a result, it makes the sunspot cooler than the rest of the sun's surface. But it's all relative. We're looking at 4,500 Kelvin for a sunspot versus almost 5,800 Kelvin for the rest of the sun. For reference, lead melts at 600 Kelvin. It is hot. The sun, as we've probably already established, is really hot. A sunspot is just a little bit less hot. And it's a little bit less hot because the magnetic field over the sunspot is so high and so strong that it prevents some heat transfer. So it gets cooler than the rest of the surface of the sun. This was a very basic explanation of this. However, it very quickly gets very complicated. You can look it up if you're interested. It's really cool. 
Back to these magnetic fields, as I've already mentioned, they tangle together, and like those two rubber bands, they twist and twist and twist until they can't anymore, and then they snap. And they emit a huge burst of radiation upon that snap. Yeah. It's like if you ever stretched a rubber band too far and it snaps, it'll snap back in your face, and it can be dangerous and hurt a lot. Yeah, definitely. And to like further build the picture in your head, the sun is, like Anna already said, incredibly hot. And what happens when the sun is really hot is that the electrons will split off of nuclei for the atoms in the sun. And what you're going to get is this like charged plasma. And when you have plasma moving and churning in the sun, it's going to create these magnetic loops that Anna is talking about. And when these loops get stronger and stronger by the plasma churning around in the sun in all these different directions and all these different loops, you're going to get this rubber band scenario that Anna just brought up. Yes, exactly. So they twist too tight and they snap. When they do that, they emit this huge burst of radiation. And now this is where the problems come in. A large enough solar flare could emit enough radiation to cause radio blackouts on Earth. And that is a problem. A pretty major problem, actually. But solar flares are not the only concern. The term solar storm also includes CMEs, or coronal mass ejections. And those are the major concern. Interestingly enough, CMEs were once thought to be triggered by solar flares, but that was later proven to be untrue. However, some do accompany solar flares. So occasionally a CME will happen after a solar flare, but a solar flare does not need to happen for a CME to happen. They can happen independently. Now, CMEs are when a significant amount of plasma that Hannah was talking about in the accompanying magnetic field are ejected from the solar corona. That's the ring of plasma around the sun. This can happen over several hours. Now, the problems come in if that material were to then collide with Earth it could cause a geomagnetic storm. And a large enough geomagnetic storm could cause large-scale blockouts, it could damage satellites, satellites which give us internet, communication, weather, all the good stuff. It could also harm any spacecraft that are orbiting Earth. For example, the ISS, which has people in it. It could also interfere with any flying aircraft, such as airplanes. Yeah. We constantly are getting solar weather on planet Earth because, you know, this plasma is constantly churning and we're getting solar radiation. The reason why it's not infringing on our technology constantly is because of our magnetic field protecting us from it. So in this scenario that Anna's describing, it's like a very intense burst of energy from the sun that would lead to these issues. Exactly. After hearing this, your obvious next thought would be, what are the chances of this happening? And it's hard to say for sure. In 2012, solar scientist Pete Riley published a study that estimated the probability of a catastrophic geomagnetic storm happening in the next 10 years was around 12%. I will actually have his study linked in the show notes. So 12%, I don't know about you, is too high for my level of comfort. (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty high. And that's funny, you brought this up because I had read that. I thought the same thing. I was like, well, this doesn't make me feel better. Are the odds in our favor? I don't know. But a paper published in Scientific Records in February of 2019 by Marinia et al. puts the likelihood between 0.46% to 1.88% of a catastrophic event happening in the next 10 years. So I like those odds a little bit better. Oh, yeah. Okay, that makes me feel better. (laughs) Me too. I will also link to their paper in the show notes if you want to read it. 
And so I found a really cool article in BBVA.com that did a great job discussing the differences between both models. Because my first instinct was like, okay, what's changed between the 2012 study and the 2019 study? I mean, they were done by different people, but they had to be using some kind of different model for them to get such different results. And now this article did a great job breaking down the differences. Riley's model, that was the 12%, was based on the hypothesis that the time between major solar events was more or less the same. However, Mourinho et al. found that major solar events actually followed a pattern called a decreasing hazard rate, or DHR. I didn't know what this was, so it was cool to learn about. What this means is that the longer it has been since a major solar event has occurred, the less likely there is to be one. An easier way to think about this is if you've ever been stung by a bee and you're not sure if you're allergic, the more time that passes since you've been stung and you have not had a reaction the less likely you are to have one. So if it's been three days since you've been stung by a bee, going like the chances of you having an allergic reaction to that bee sting are really low versus two minutes after getting stung by a bee. So the longer it's been since the sting, the less likely you are to have a reaction. That's so interesting. Yeah. It's kind of counterintuitive because I think about earthquakes, you know, and the probability is the longer you go without an earthquake, the higher the probability is that you'll get one in the next decade or next 50 years. When I think about earthquakes, I have that mental model. And then when you say this, it's counterintuitive for me. But it is interesting. I thought so too. It also caught me off guard. The other thing I want to mention is that all of these are just guesses. We don't know. Nobody knows. Nobody can tell the future. We're just giving our best guess. So be prepared. As somebody who has anxiety, I do not want to make everybody panic about this, but I do not think it's ever a bad idea to have a small emergency kit. I have a crank radio. I also have, you can buy water purification tablets online. I sent them to my parents. I have them too. I keep them in my wallet. It's better to have them and not need them than the other way around. So just have a couple of small items just in case an emergency. It doesn't have to be a solar storm. It could really be any kind of natural disaster. So just, you know, be prepared. Yeah, Anna, that's great advice. Like, I'm definitely going to go buy some water purification tablets now. Like, I did not think to do that, but that's really good advice. I can't remember. I I learned it from somebody else who was like, you should always have them. Yeah, that's awesome. I said that to my parents. And the first thing my mom said was, well, do they make the water taste bad? (laughs) I was like, is that really going to be your first instinct (laughs) if you need to use them? (laughs) I think you'll want to drink water that's potable than tasty, like, unpotable water in the in the case of a solar storm blacking out the entire world. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I, this is for emergency. Hopefully we never use them. <laughs> oh, my God. That's hilarious. I love it. Now, something interesting this paper touches upon, and Hannah's going to go into it a lot more, so I'm not going to go too far into it. The last major geomagnetic storm was in 1859. A lot has changed since 1859, particularly our reliance on electricity. Definitely. But I'm not going to spoil it. Hannah's going to go into it more. Anna, that was great. I had a lot of fun researching this one. It was super interesting for me, too. I had a blast doing the research. I'm excited to get into the 1859 storm that you touched on. I know. Bring it on. All right. Should we take a quick break? Yeah, let's do it. Oh, 
All right, Hannah. All right, Anna. Are, Are you, you ready? ready? Exp- oh. <laughs> 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 We're getting too good at this and saying it at the same time. I am so ready. All right, let's dive in. Bring it on. All right, so like Anna alluded to, I will be talking about a huge solar storm event How in our history. <laughs> I have a lot of feelings about this, Anna, so you're just going to have to, you've, you're, you're stuck for the ride here. I can tell you made it two <laughs> syllables. <laughs> All right. So I'll be talking about the Carrington event. This was the largest solar storm, aka geomagnetic storm, for planet Earth in the last 500 years per NASA scientists. It occurred at 1118 a.m. EDT on September 1st, 1859. Oh, I didn't realize. So it's exact. It's almost exactly. So it's almost exactly 162 years ago. Yeah, that's wild. All right. The beginnings of this momentous solar storm began actually four days earlier, four days before September 1st, on August 28, 1859, when sunspots had started showing up on the sun's surface. Shortly after they showed up, a CME, coronal mass ejection, erupted that sent charged particles toward the earth. Aurora started illuminating the sky in New England. Telegraphs started burning up in Pittsburgh and Washington, D.C. There were telegraph operators who even got shocked, electrically shocked. Oh. Yeah, it was really bad. But this was just the beginning. The real meat of the matter occurred on September 1st. That was a big day for Richard Carrington the man who the Carrington event is named after. Richard Carrington was an amateur solar astronomer who on September 1st, he was observing the sun through his brass telescope as he usually would from his nice, fancy private observatory. And he did this very often. And as he usually would observe, he would sketch his sightings. So September 1st came around and he was there in his observatory sketching away, observing, but it wasn't a typical day because around noon, he witnessed a striking eruption of two solar flares, one after another, both of them originating from the sunspots. These magnificent explosions released hundreds of thousands of times more energy than the entire nuclear stock blowing up at once. I'm just imagining this guy who's just like... Who's just like, isn't astronomy fun? And all of a sudden gets like way over his head. (laughs) Right? Like looking through his telescope and being like, what (laughs) just happened? Space is no longer a peaceful, dreamy thing to sketch out. (laughs) No. Oof. Oh my gosh. And also the statistic I just read, I just wanted to sink into everyone's minds. These explosions released uh, released hundreds of thousands of times more energy than the entire nuclear stockpile of planet Earth blowing up at once. That's so much. It's that is so, so much energy. Much. Granted, a lot of that energy, of course, dissipated into other parts of space, and we got some of it here on the planet. But still, like, just imagining how much energy was released—it's crazy. A lot. So now the next question becomes, well, how disruptive was the actual Carrington event? It was incredibly disruptive. Per scientists, the massive CME that Carrington witnessed reached the Earth within 18 hours, 
when typically it takes three to four days for CMEs to reach Earth. It is estimated that the DST was approximately negative 1760 nanoteslas. I was like, DST- what is NT? Nanoton? <laughs> I, I actually, in my notes, I have NT, and it took me a moment to remember what the <laughs> I was looking at it, metric I was, like, was. I don't know what the T is. <laughs> Um, So DST actually stands for Disturbance Storm Time. So to describe that simply, it basically is a measurement of how much our magnetic field is impacted by a solar storm, like how much it fluctuates under the effects, under the influence of a coronal mass ejection. The more negative the value, the wilder and more intense the effects of the storm are. Typically, you'll see some beautiful northern lights at minus 50 nanoteslas. And another event in our history, just to understand the impact of the Carrington event, another event in our history was the Quebec blackout storm of 1989, which completely blacked out Quebec's electrical grid, which registered... This registered at minus 600 DST. So compare that to the Carrington event, which was almost three times in magnitude of DST. Minus 1760 nanoteslas. All right. So like I alluded to earlier, telegraph wires in both the U.S. and Europe experienced these induced voltage increases. And... In some cases, like I mentioned, they were delivering these shocks to these telegraph operators and igniting fires. That just sounds like a rough day. It was really bad, yeah. Aurora were seen as far south as Hawaii, Mexico, Cuba, the Caribbean. And this is wild because these events are typically only visible in the polar regions. What Hannah, I think, means when she means Aurora, it's like the Aurora Borealis is the big one. Like, you have to be in Iceland like, you have to be far up north or right, south and, to see those. Yeah, and the reason why is because our magnetic fields are weaker at those points. Exactly. Yes. So the fact that people are getting them in Mexico in Hawaii means that the magnetic field is all sorts of messed up. Yes, exactly. And apparently, like, historians found that The aurora was so bright that people actually woke up in the middle of the night and actually got to work thinking the next day had started. Okay. Uh, This is not related, but on the list, something I think about a lot. Like, what did we do before alarm clocks? This is what I was thinking, Anna. Like, literally, that was my thought when I read that. (laughs) Like, I think about this more than I should because it doesn't matter. But, like, what did we do? Like, how did you know when to wake up? Was the rooster thing real where they do the cockle doodle do in the morning? Like, was it? I don't I know. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know. And it, some people are like, I just wake up at the same time every day. I don't have that problem. Like, <laughs> Yeah, no, I can't. I can't. Some like, days, I thought, if I get into the rhythm, I can, but not on a regular basis. <laughs> if I don't set an alarm, all bets are off. Oh, Yeah. Definitely. (laughs) Okay. Well, fascinating. Fascinating and always good to know that we're on the same wavelength sometimes (laughs) with our concerns about the world. Yeah. I was like, what did they do? (laughs) Uh, All right. Let's get back to solar storms. 
I found a paper from January 2020. So actually, Anna, I also found some statistics and I'll share those as well. And these were along the lines of the statistics that Anna shared about, you know, the probability of solar storms occurring. So this paper from January 2020 studied all of the documented solar storm events in history to determine their likelihoods moving forward. The paper I specifically looked at was written by a group of scientists at the University of Warwick's Center of Fusion, Space, and Astrophysics. It's titled, Using the AA Index Over the Last 14 Solar Cycles to Characterize Extreme Geomagnetic Activity. And it was published in the journal Geophysical Research Letters. So in their paper, the author showed that severe magnetic storms occurred in 42 out of the last 150 years, or on average that like equates to one every three years. The more powerful great superstorms occurred in six years out of 150, or about every 25 years. And in summary, the researchers found, so Anna, these are along the, the lines of the statistics that you shared, that on average there's a 4% chance of at least one great storm per year, 28% chance of a severe storm per year, and a 0.7% chance of a Carrington-class storm per year. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so just some more numbers to throw out there. And, all right, so Anna touched on this, and I'm just going to get into it a little bit more. What would the impact be if a solar storm hit us today? So if a storm as powerful as the Carrington event were to hit Earth today, it is estimated to cause trillions of dollars worth of damage because our world is so much more electronically connected than it was back in the 1850s. Back when the Carrington event took place, the biggest technological invention was the telegraph system connecting society. But now, when you look around, we have so much technology that depends on electricity, like Anna already said. Actually, a Carrington-sized solar storm missed Earth by a small margin back in 2012, and re uh, researchers found that when they projected the cost impact, they found that it could have caused $2.3 trillion worth of damage to the U.S. alone if that solar storm had hit us back in 2012. Whoa. The, yeah, it's, that's a huge amount of damage. And that value, the $2.3 trillion worth of damage to the U.S., that is 20 times the cost impact by Hurricane Katrina. Oh, and the God. time, yeah, it's really awful. And the time to repair all that damage would be about four to ten years. Like, if you think about Texas, if you saw the news, Texas got hit by that storm, that winter storm, and all mm -hmm. the power went out, and they had all these problems. Think about the amount of money and time it took to fix that, and that was just in certain areas of Texas. Right. Exactly. And when that happens, at least, like, the rest of the U.S. was still connected to help Texas out. Yeah. Now, imagine if it was everybody. And then also including the countries that border us. Exactly. And everyone lost connection. So how do you communicate resources? How do you communicate help to these areas that need it? It's to everywhere. Crazy. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a lot to think about. Get your crank radio. <laughs> yeah. Actually, though. Yeah. So just moving along, like on the same path of our conversation, we would experience a blackout everywhere. Our, all of our power distribution systems, our global communication systems, it could be temporary blackouts or the surges of power 
can actually destroy transformers at the source, leaving us without power until those transformers were completely replaced and rebuilt. Imagine losing your ability to call, text, navigate, connect, order instant delivery. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think you were like, you can't text or call anybody, but you also can't get Uber Eats. <laughs> yeah, no more Uber Eats, no more Amazon Prime, no more Instacart. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah, life is going to be a disaster. And more important things, hospital life support systems would shut down, electric vehicles would not work, grocery stores would not be able to keep your produce cool. And all of this would happen at once, immediately. I just would like to point out that Hannah put instant delivery before hospital life support <laughs> systems on her list of stuff. Just my train of thought. <laughs> Sue me. She's like, I don't know when my H&M order will get to me. <laughs> okay, Anna. Also, I'm, I'm pretty sure you would have done the same thing. I so. would have. I would have. <laughs> I'm making fun of you for something I would also do. <laughs> it's because you get it. <laughs> I do. I do. Um, all right. So, but to like give everyone a bit of comfort, we are not completely unprepared as a society. Engineers understand the grave impact of a solar storm, and they will be able to take precaution when we predict that a solar storm may hit Earth. So, for example, they can power off systems to create a temporary blackout. So solar storm generated surges don't overpower and break our grid. I think about it like... I don't know. I grew up in an area where there's really bad thunderstorms. And if they're really bad, we like unplugged the TV and you didn't have your cell phone in the wall. Like, so if lightning hit the house, it wouldn't like short out your TV. It's kind of like the much larger version of that. That's exactly. Yeah, that's exactly it, Anna. I remember uh, now that you're saying that, I remember getting those, um, seeing those news alerts back when I was um, younger. It was like the standard as a kid to be like, okay, bad thunderstorm. Everybody unplug everything. (laughs) Yeah, but in general, to iterate on what Anna has already said, be prepared for emergencies. It never hurts to keep a few extra things in your home just in case. Just like we learn from our own mistakes in our day-to-day lives, we need to learn from the catastrophes that have happened in the big picture history, the big picture history of the world. So it never hurts to just have a few extra things to keep us safe. What a lovely way to phrase that. Thanks, Anna. But yeah, that's all I have. This was a fun one. I liked this one. It was really interesting because we we have touched upon solar storms and solar flares <clears throat> in multiple different episodes, but we never fully explain what they are. Yes. And you were right. Like, it deserved its own episode. There's a lot to cover. All right, Anna, do you want to tell everyone where they can find us? Yeah. So you can find us on our website, but it is rocketscience.com. You can learn a little bit more about Hannah and I. We also have a contact us page if you want to shoot us a message, give us recommendations for future episodes, just say hi. We also have a merch store. We currently only ship to the U.S. and Canada, but if you want to buy tote bags, coffee mugs, fun stuff with our logo, we've all got that on there. And we have free shipping right now, and we may possibly have some more cool stuff coming down the line. So keep your eyes peeled. We also have a Patreon, uh, but we fully acknowledge times are weird right now. Times are weird for everybody. If you feel so inclined, we will have it linked in our show notes. It is just, but it is rocket science. However, there is absolutely no pressure. We are so happy you're here. 
we just love seeing that people listen to us and listen to and into our episodes and it absolutely makes our day it really does so again <laughs> we're just happy you're here and then you can find us on twitter at but it is rs you can find us on instagram where we i was looking through it i was like oh man we post a whole lot of coffee we like coffee so <laughs> you can check us out on instagram where we post our different coffee adventures as well as other things and that's but it is rocket science you can also find us on facebook at but it is rocket science all right you want to do our sources you want to start out first yes i'd love to all right so i used a couple wikipedia pages as a launch pad i used the wikipedia page for the carrington event i used a wikipedia page for geomagnetic storms i used a youtube video called the carrington event by the channel geographics I used a sciencealert.com article about solar storms. I used a paper, um, which was titled Using the AA Index Over the Last 14 Solar Cycles to Characterize Extreme Geomagnetic Activity by Chapman et al. I also used another YouTube video uh, by Kurzgesagt about solar storm and a history.com article about solar superstorms. How about you, Anna? Um, so first off, I have that article that started this whole thing, that Wired article that I mentioned at the beginning. I used a NASA article all about just describing sunspots and solar flares. I used the Wikipedia page for a solar storm. I used weather.gov just to learn a bit, a little bit more about sunspots. I used that web, those notes, those lecture notes from the New Jersey Institute of Technology. I used, I was like, why do I have a Wikipedia page about lead? And it's because that's where I found the melting <laughs> temperature of lead. I have uh, that BBVA website I talked about, so bbvaopenmind.com, and it compared and contrasted two different studies about the probability of a Carrington-like event. I used Earth Spare. <laughs> I used an article from EarthSky.org about how likely a solar storm or a Carrington-like event is. I will have the link to the paper I mentioned by David Marina at all. I will also have the study linked by Pete Riley about the probability of a extreme solar event. And that's all I got. Until next time, space cadets. T minus three, two, one, liftoff.